are we tokenizing them? You know, that are we too. reducing people? Are we reducing people to their what movement generation they're in? One of the things we talked about is how um, young people are not in movement across the board, are not seen as kind of full and whole activists. Mm-hmm. They're seen as youth activists who can only kind of advocate for these issues. And then elders become this repository of knowledge but really don't have anything new to add. It's like, okay, how did you do things so that I can now take that? So it's like when we reduce people to their their movement generation, whatever that means, we kind of forget the idea. We lose the idea that parents were once kids too. I think that we're asking the wrong questions about it, and so we're not getting the answers. Um, we're not talking. We're talking about what is different across generations rather than, like, what is common. Welcome to Episode 1, Part 1 of the Civil Liberties and Public Policy Podcast, or CLIP. CLIP is building the reproductive justice movement by training the next generation of leaders. Each year, we prepare thousands of young folks to work on issues like the separation of immigrant families, paid family leave, abortion bans, the mortality rate of black mothers, Healthcare discrimination faced by trans folks and people of color. The barriers LGBTQ community face when creating a family and much, much more. I am your host, Al, office manager at CLIP, and I'm here with Jeannie, CLIP's communications coordinator who stitches everything together and makes this podcast possible. Hey, this is Jeannie. Along with you, we are dropping into conversations with movement leaders, activists, educators, and students. We are excited to raise the voices of our invited guests while they tease out difficult conversations. This is an exploration of their thoughts, ideas, current and past works. These are complicated conversations that don't have simple answers. We hope that you hold the complexities with us. We recorded this on October 28th, 2020, a politically tense moment, two days after Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed to the Supreme Court, a week before presidential general elections, and seven months into the COVID-19 pandemic. We originally wanted to keep this as one episode, but the conversations were so rich and in-depth and we did not want to leave anything out. So we split this first episode into two parts. In part two, Namratha and Amy talk about what gives them hope and keeps them grounded in the worst possible political moments that they have dealt with. They notice the obstacles and preconceptions that we need to overcome, including shifting focus on how we want liberation to feel and not how it might look. Um, I have a couple of questions that have come up while listening to your discussion, and I love that you just brought up hope and having to dig deep into to find those places of hope. And I think, I know I can personally relate to that being really difficult um, right now and at other times. And I'm curious to know, how do you do that? And do you have recommendations um, of how to do that right now? And what does bring you hope when you are in that place? I'm curious to hear about how you dealt with, with that type of thing when you were dealing with your own worst possible thing. Ooh, you know, and, and at this age, you know, you just start accumulating more and more of them, right? Kind of like you said, your generation has certainly been shaped and or um, informed by, you know, the back-to-back once-in-a-lifetime events, whether they're the economic issues or the climate issues, right? Like um, that sort of the time frame is super condensed, right? Um, 
and at my age, I'm just like, oh, the, the time between each of these things is getting shorter and shorter. And so our recovery time is less and less, right? So as someone whose family is from Puerto Rico, right? Puerto Rico has been in bad shape for a long time economically. We get hit with back-to-back hurricanes that all but destroy our island. Um, a federal government that is completely unresponsive um, to the needs of the three to four million people and citizens who live on the island. And let me be clear, I'm not lifting up citizenship as the end all be all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we could have a whole conversation about that. And then earthquakes come, right? So I was with Clip earlier this year at our Emerging Leaders program, and we were in Puerto Rico, and we were in Puerto Rico in part to support economic development on the island, right? And that within two months, not even, maybe six weeks of that meeting, everybody is shutting down because of COVID, right? Like the time frame, the ability to grieve, the ability to strategize and pivot um, becomes more, the ability to grieve is, is reduced, right? Like we have less and less time to grieve and process the hard emotions because we are required and pushed into action more quickly each time. And the effect that that has on us, I think, is extremely detrimental. Um, and to me, calls into calls to the forefront the need for, for community. And, and whoever your people are, whether they're your family, whether they're your friends, however you identify them, whoever your gente are, you end up, I think, needing them more and more and more because we're holding all of this stuff, right? Um, I will also, so for me, it's the, I do what I do out of love for my people, whoever I define that as. And rage is a huge component of what drives me, but it is not at the heart of why I do it. It's love for my people that I do what I do. And that love is not diminished by these horrible events. So that's one thing that I think keeps me grounded is that, you know, the, the, the government's complete lack of humanity with regards to Puerto Rico, Florida, Houston, the Gulf Coast, everywhere that's been ravaged by hurricanes in the last decade, let's say. That doesn't change the fact that I still love my people that I still want what's best for Puerto Rico, that I still want to be sure that people can thrive, right? Um, And so in that way, being grounded in love for community, for family, um, sort of acts like um, a shield in a lot of ways, right? Um, The other thing, and it's kind of funny for me to think this way, is my faith, right? So I was raised Catholic, have had lifelong issues with the way my, um, the institution of Roman Catholicism has harmed and continues to harm mine, yours, ours, right? And yet I am clearer now than I ever was when I was in Catholic school for sure that my belief that there is something bigger than me um, is what I have to hold on to sometimes. Sometimes I'll be honest with you, Namratha, it's all I've got. There are days I wake up, 
I come upstairs in my house. I sit at my altar. I light candles. I light incense or sage. And I'm almost in tears because I'm like, I, I, I don't know what you want from me right now. Like, what am I supposed to be doing right now? You know, the sky is falling right now because that's what it feels like, like in my heart. Um, that's what it feels like when my, like my family and my friends are, are distraught over the events of happening in the world, right? Um, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, I am convinced that the most texted word in, for, for almost all the communities I'm a part of is, and you'll have to edit this out, I'm convinced everyone texted everyone they knew and said some version of, fuck! <laughs> Like, so, like, because my phone blew up and everyone had some version, their version of that, right? I called my mom, my biological mom, because I have two moms. I call my mom. I tell her, Ginsburg has died. And you, you can tell what her reaction was, right? And then my mom went into a spin for a few days. Like, she, for her, okay, the sky had finally fallen. And I felt similarly, and I didn't call my mom for like two days, even though I knew she would want to talk to me and I would want to talk to her. I knew we were both just not in a good place and that that wasn't going to help us. So I waited until I was in a better place and I called her. And that better place for me came with a lot of reflection and meditation. And honestly, Namrata, it was like, well, what am I going to do now? I've, you know, I have dedicated my life to fighting for the issues I believe are important. No one said it was going to be easy. I knew that already. And it wasn't easy when Ginsburg was on the court, right? Like, so sometimes it's also a bit of, I need a bit of like, it's not about you, hun. Like, you knew all of this. This has always been hard. So, like, process what you need to process. And I did. I needed a couple of days to work through all the feelings a shot of tequila didn't hurt. And then I was like, okay, you know, the work hasn't stopped. The work hasn't changed. Um, so, I, so like, believing in a higher, and I don't want to just say in a higher power in the religious sense. I mean a higher power in terms of I deeply believe that we as community can do the things we need to do to get to a better place. I believe it in the marrow of my bones. I, I, I know it as I see you here. And so sometimes, you know, I, I get blown off track a little, and I need to let myself go through that so that I can come back. Because I knew sort of when I signed up for this that nothing was going to change right away. I knew the, the, the hits would come. And I, and I didn't expect I would necessarily see the victories in my lifetime, if that makes sense. Maybe a couple, right? A couple of small wins, woohoo, yay us. But I wasn't necessarily counting on things being all fixed in my lifetime. That that wasn't just that just isn't how I moved through the world. So, my love for my community, my deep belief in faith, and and it's faith in a God. And it's faith and community that we actually have the tools we need to do what we need to do for us. Um, 
that's what keeps me going. Um, And the last thing I'll say is looking to others and learning from others about how else we can move forward, right? I don't assume I know all the ways forward. I know all the strategies. I know all the ideas. So for me, this is where the intergenerational part becomes really important in that If you always do things the way you've always done them, you're not going to get different results, right? If you always talk to the same people all the time, you're not going to get new information. You're not going to get new trains of thought. So what does it mean to have a vibrant, engaged group of people that you can be in community with um, so that we're constantly generating ideas and generating strategies and generating programs and refining them. And I feel like that comes in conversations like this. I feel like that comes like at the board retreat we were at last summer and about the for like where we thought clip might go. Like to be engaged and like really work through some stuff I think makes us all better, makes our work better. Um and I think that's why community feels so important to me. It's it's that also continued learning from other people. Um, did that make sense at all? No, it made so much sense. I'm just like resonating with it and like feeling it. Um, I I need a second <laughs> like feel it. But yeah, no, that's that's a lot. That's why, Amy. Well, and I say, and yes, and, you know, I'm 47, almost 48, right? So I have been doing this work for a good chunk of my life, as you have too, right? So it's also just like I've made this investment. I've made this dedication. Um, and my, I will say this, my elders, my mentors, the people that I look to, have also helped prepare me for when these hits would come. You know, something that I am thinking about, just thinking about everything you're saying, Amy, and just the trend of our conversation and of so many other conversations, is that I think that when we're talking about not just generational conversations but the movement, we tend to overemphasize and overvalorize change. You know, like something's got to change. Say more about Uh, that. I'm thinking about so much of what we're talking about is, you know, it's like we're coming from these different contexts, but we have been dealing and thinking through the same types of things at any given point, this idea that we're looking forward because something's got to change, I feel like that in this moment, I'm like, that's not really resonating with me because when I look into the future, I've always said this, is that kind of like what you were saying is that if we keep doing the same thing, like we're not going to really get anywhere or we're going to get the same stuff, but I've always said that, like, I don't, I think it's absolute hubris to look into the future to say and say, I know exactly what liberation is going to look like, you know, because the only thing that we're doing is responding. It's reactionary to what we've already seen. So, and I think this is true of most of us is that when we're thinking about what does liberation look like, it doesn't, it's not actually what it looks like. It's what it feels like. And that part, that 
feeling of being held in community that you know, you've spoken on and I I really feel um, in in my bones as well. And this is kind of what anchors so many of us in our work, but that's not new. You know, that's not something that has to change. That's something that's held us down for generations right. past and generations future. So I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, this isn't a fully articulated thought, but I'm thinking about how this overemphasis and like this overvalorization of change is the thing that we're striving for when really what we need is what we already have. We just have to bring it to the forefront. Like I wonder, I wonder about it and I want to think more about it. Um, and I guess in that sense, what I, what pulls me down or what gives me hope is that all of these things, all of these kind of horrible, worst possible outcomes, air, mm-hmm. air quotes around that, and thinking about that, like those of us, there's so many of us for whom the sky is always on the, the ground, you know, and so what are, what are we looking, what does it feel like in that moment? And I think that when I think about these moments, I see them as moments of possibility, mm-hmm. and that really grounds me. So, you know, if I think about what we were saying earlier about how, you know, mainstream, the mainstream, also air quotes, or, you know, the state co-ops our movements, that means that they're, they're no longer on our own terms. And so, so much of what we have right now, though, hard fought and hard won, um, has been taken and, like, mm-hmm. it's now being weaponized against us. And so what we have when these things go, like, you know, horribly wrong, for lack of a PG-friendly word, um, <laughs> then what it really is is an opportunity to do, undo a foundation that is kind of woefully inadequate. Like, I think about, you know, Roe, um, Roe v. Wade, and I think about how that is that that is a woefully inadequate, um, I guess, framework to, to mm-hmm. be working with abortion rights. It's what we have, hard fought, part one is very important. Um, but if we're really thinking about what does it mean to like really comprehensively and holistically embody the right to an abortion, you know, Roe v. Wade allows, uh, it kind of articulates abortion rights as a doctor's right, you know, or your right, right. to be an individual and like to be inside of your own you know, the privacy of being an isolated being. Um, And you you see, look at the the pandemic of coronavirus. I was reading something um, from Arundhati Roy, who is um, a scholar and a writer, Mm -hmm. and she had this beautiful framing. The pandemic is a portal. You know, that that change is a portal. um, And that these are, these moments are opportunities to cross over into something different or Mm -hmm. a different world. Um, and because that's something that we've talked about is how coronavirus and having to like respond to this has made it really clear that health is kind of a communal issue, it's a community public issue. So, right. and then we knew this, but bringing it to the forefront. And so, all of these things that are like this is the worst possible thing. So, even how we're talking about, um, you know, our Supreme Court situation, how this was kind of the worst possible situation, but now we're having all these conversations about what if we expanded the court? You know, and that's not even something that was on the table. So if we continue to make do with something that's not working, um, then we're not actually getting there. So now we're like, okay. And now even in this election cycle, we're saying, what if we 
And this, these are, again, not new ideas, but you know, right. I'm so heartened by the fact that there are things that are on the table that would have been like fringe ideas, not even three years ago. You know, we had a yep. presidential debate in the Democratic primary in which reparations was being seriously talked about, you know, in which, mm -hmm. you know, the idea that we need to actually abolish the Electoral College is being seriously talked about. And these yep. are fringe ideas, not even, you know, three or four years ago. And so these, all of these kind of worst possible scenarios, and just one more example, actually, that really comes to me is that Trump is a worst possible scenario. <laughs> you know, he is. And yet, in the aftermath of that, people are mobilized. People like my mom, who has not a day in her life been political, you know, air quotes again around political. And right. suddenly, you know, she's watching the presidential debate. You know, she's telling me, about like I didn't even watch them because I was just so frustrated. Why right. you watch them and was kind of telling me about it. And so people who, you know, were not mobilized before, though you know we can ask why weren't you mobilized before, but the fact is they weren't, and now that they are, and like yeah. there's such intense movement around all of these different social issues right now that is directly as a in response to how, like, just bad, horrifically bad Trump is. And so all of these different, you know, sky is on the ground moments are just portals in mm -hmm. my brain. You know, these are possible. You know, what we had wasn't working. You know, right. It's not like it was an amazing thing we had going. <laughs> um, and so, like, when we've reached the end of the line on that, we have this real opportunity to, like, undo that infrastructure that's not working. Um and so when I see it that way, I'm excited for the future. You know, yeah. even if that's like you're saying, this is not a future that maybe we are physically present in, but like we are going to be there because oh, yeah. we're going to be, we're going to be taking these things on. So even if I don't see that future, like the possibilities for it in these moments are just kind of overwhelmingly exciting. Yeah. And that holds I, me down. That's awesome. I love that framework. <laughs> the mm -hmm. um the portal, the idea of the portal in these non reversible moments is a moment of possibility and a moment of organizing, bringing people more bringing more people into the movement in these moments. Um that's really a great way to think about it. Do you do you think that with that in mind, um, do you think that the reproductive justice movement does that well? Like, do does the reproductive justice movement take these moments, these seemingly non-reversible moments, um, as opportunities well? And also, I'd love to bring in: um, Does the reproductive justice movement? hold the differences and similarities between intergenerational folks well? Hmm. Or how does it hold it, I could also say. Those are good questions, Al. Um, 
I'll I'll start with your first question by saying I think what the reproductive justice movement does and and why it's my political home right because I've done work in other movements and and I'm aligned with and still involved with other movements is the centering of community over and over and over again so you know coronavirus struck most of us weren't talking about it yet most of us are like what is this thing i don't understand and folks were mobilizing within the rj movement within the reproductive justice movement to figure out how was this going to impact us how is this going to impact our communities um, we saw very early on that, um, you know, our political opponents saw coronavirus as an opportunity to limit abortion access, right? Jumped on it like this. And what I thought was interesting is while a lot of our partners in reproductive health rights and justice immediately pivoted to protecting abortion in those places, some of us also recognize that one impact of the pandemic was um, limiting pregnant people's access to support in hospitals as they gave birth, as they labored, right? And in my mind, that is only possible with a framework that allows for the right to have a child and the right to not have a child, right? That we hold those two equally. So while lots of folks were out fighting the states that were trying to, you know, use the pandemic as an excuse to limit our autonomy and our self-determination around abortion, others of us were fighting the state and the hospitals because they were trying to limit our self-determination and autonomy around how we birthed children. Um, and I think that doesn't happen if we're not deeply connected to community, if we are not of the communities we say we're fighting for, right? We saw mutual aid societies pop up and, and other configurations of, okay, we need to provide a different kind of support to our community. So there were food pantries opening and, you know, Sister Song, who I'm deeply connected with, started a birth justice fund to support birth workers but also, like, some people need diapers for their babies. Some people need a car seat or they can't go home with their baby, right? Though that pivot, in my mind, is possible in the RJ movement because our framework is so much broader and it's intersectional. Um, and so in that way, I think we have, our movement has an agility and a facility to be able to respond differently. Um, and, you know, thankful that the folks who could take on the abortion fight did, because we still need abortion access. And also thankful that other people saw another area where we needed to jump in. Um, and that, you know, birth justice is an area that deeply impacts women of color, people of color, black and indigenous pregnant people more than other um, issues may, right? So like in that way, I feel like, we are able to pivot, we might be able to change uh, differently than other movements can. Um, how do we hold the intergenerational 
piece and RJ. I think that's a great question. I'm not sure I have an answer. And I say that because, and Martha and I talked about this a little bit. I feel like I'm like, I'm not a founding mother, right? Um, I came in early though, so that I know founders, right? And I know those early um, creators of our movement. I feel like I'm that, maybe that first generation of kids right, like who's grown up and is like, oh, there's this thing and I'm a part of this thing and I've helped, I hope, build infrastructure, right, and build program and like helped build, but I wasn't at the beginning. So I'm not a parent, right? I'm one of those early older kids. And as such, it's like I have a relationship with my elders, right, and I so appreciate being in community with them regularly. And I'm also clear, like, my other siblings, right, who are a little bit younger than me and who may have come into the movement for completely different reasons, right? And so I think we have been working at trying to hold an intergenerational space because I think we are now old enough, the movement, and I mean the movement when I say we, like, we're cognizant that we have multiple generations. Right, and that like we have even more generations than we are probably aware of, and so how do we make space for that without um, without glorifying our elders at the expense of everyone else, or the other way around, glorifying and adulating and um, young people at the expense? Right, like how do you hold it so that everyone has a space, everyone has a place, everyone has a voice, everyone is seen and heard? Um, I don't know if other movements are doing that well. I think we're working on it. Um, you know, we talk a lot about sex education in our field, right? But we don't talk about perimenopause and menopause. And a lot more of us are moving closer to that realm than toward the other, right? So I think we're working on it. I think we've, I think we definitely have more work to do. Um, but I feel like it's a constant thread, right? Like Amrata and I are different generations in the movement. We're peers in the movement. How can I be of service to Namratha and what Namratha's vision is? Um, how can I partner with Namratha and and support that is where my where my head goes. Um, because being a little bit older I feel like ha I have more access. I have more privilege in some ways. Um, which is not the same as having more answers. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. Amy, I want to jump off of what you're saying right now because my brain's just like, yes, that's exactly what it is. And this is Amy and I briefly talked um, the other day. Um, but like, what does it actually mean to have a generational conversation? And I'm thinking now, I'm trying to make these connections. Like, like I thought in my head that we are overemphasizing change. Um, like what is different between each generation and the idea, again, that most things seem to be the same because we are people and we're people are tend to have the same driving motivations. Um, but that the generational conversation is really about power and process. You know, like how do we do things and who is kind of, who is in this space? Um, and so when I think about the generational conversation, I, I really don't think anyone is doing it well. Um, but I think it's, it's not a, it's not because it's we are it's not possible. It's that we just won't. 
you know, we won't have the conversation because they think that there are a lot of wounds there. Um, there is a lot of hurt. Um, and that's why I'm really excited for civil liberties and public policy uh, to be doing this podcast because I'm really, I'm really interested to hear how other people kind of unpack that because if it's a question of power, then it's a question about, you know, who has power, who feels like other people have power over them, um, who feels like they don't have specific types of power. And I think um, the way that we share power ends up being extremely hierarchical. I, I would say it's, it becomes extremely top down, and even what you're saying, Amy, about this idea of like, do we over, you know, do we glorify our elders, or do we glorify, you know, our young people, or even kind of like, I would say, even say glorify is too positive a word. <laughs> like we do, are we tokenizing them? You know, that are we too. reducing people? Are we reducing people to their what movement generation they're in? One of the things we talked about is how. Um, young people are not in movement across the board, are not seen as kind of full and whole activists. Mm -hmm. They're seen as youth activists who can only kind of advocate for these issues. And then elders become this repository of knowledge but really don't have anything new to add. It's like, okay, how did you do things so that I can now take that? So it's like when we reduce people to their their movement generation, whatever that means, we kind of forget the idea. We lose the idea that parents were once kids too. You know, those mm -hmm. who founded our movement were children or were kind of coming out of other other movements, of uh, having other elders. Um, and so it's this kind of constantly evolving thing um, that we, I think that we're asking the wrong questions about it and so we're not getting the answers. Um, mm -hmm. We're not talking, we're talking about what is different across generations rather than like what is common and how are we, how is it actually, it's even apples to oranges, I think, because I think that we're not talking about process, we're not talking about power in a way that's really meaningful or productive. And I know that's a kind of abstract thing to say, um, but I think that in future podcasts, I hope that those answers or those things are going to be dug into. Um, and then I also, there's just so much, Amy, you're just so brilliant. I just love seeing your space with you because I'm, there's so much. My brain's on fire and positive fire. Um, just, I think, responding to the first part of the question, uh, like, does RJ do this well? Does it hold it well? And like, what you're saying, what you were saying, Amy, about RJ has this, like, agility and this facility. And I think that that is a product of, RJ, reproductive justice, um, being, it's about being attuned, you know, and it's by no means the only framework that does this, but I think what reproductive justice does is put at the forefront, you know, this idea of what does it mean to exist in a kinship network that mm -hmm. works for you, that is meaningful and essential for you, and that idea of connection and kinship and like who cares for you that is so essential to being a person you know like yep. humans are fundamentally relational beings like we, we cannot exist on islands on our own and so reproductive justice and whatever through the right to have a child to not have a child to raise that child in whatever circumstance or environment that that um feels good to you because it even goes beyond that like what right. is what is the family 
that you are choosing to make, if you're choosing not to have a child or you're choosing to have a child in a context that's not a nuclear family. You know, how are you building the family? How are you building the, the unit that cares for you? Um, and RJ really puts that at the forefront. And what reproductive justice then does is to say, you know, what are all the factors that limit our ability to decide or to build that kinship network? Because I kind of, I, I try not to put too much emphasis on agency and mm -hmm. choice and autonomy because those feel like highly individualistic ideas, at least the way we understand them. Um, and, you know, what is choice under duress? Because we're constantly under duress. Um, and so I try to think of it more as like, are you building what feels good to you? Mm -hmm. um, and so RJ asks, what are the factors that, you know, limit our potential, our ability um, to build that thing? And it, RJ, again, it doesn't uniquely do this, but has this really power, because it is operating on such a powerful premise of kinship and family. It's, it's able to put into really clear perspective how pretty much everything structures our ability to do that. You know, um, like we look at voting rights, and that's not immediately a reproductive justice issue, but the ability to vote and to participate in, like, you know, whatever a democracy is, but the ability to have this say. Um, in what goes on around you. And the limitation of that is not, again, immediately a reproductive justice issue, but, it, you know, thinking of things as a product of systems of power versus just these kind of individualized issues, we could say there's white supremacy here, you know, that white mm -hmm. supremacy is at the root of this, or there is patriarchy here at the root of this, and that allows us to see ourselves not as, well, it allows us to see ourselves as all having a stake in it, you know, that we are all kind of being operated upon in this system of power. And so we're all in it together. And it also allows us to get to the root of something. So it's, and actually do something about it, mm -hmm. I think. So I think RJ holds this really well. It holds all this really well because that's kind of its basic premise is about holding all of this stuff, like all of these factors, and to see it's about being attuned to what are those factors. And those factors almost always come, and I won't even say almost, always come down to the systems of power that structure our lives, which then allows us to actually see how we are all involved in it and how we can all kind of join hands in it. So, yeah, I get very intense about it because I'm like, this is amazing, which is also, you know, why... RJ has become my political home, too, um, because it has allowed me to really embody all of those values that are important to me and to kind of, like, live that truth in a way that feels like it's actually – I'm not limited by choosing, like, a single issue mm -hmm. to work on. I'm right. looking at this huge thing that is hugely important to me, and when you're confronting one thing, you're confronting everything. All right. at the same time. So, yeah, short answer, amazing. RJ, amazing. <laughs> Outstanding. A plus. A plus for RJ. A plus for RJ. Yes, yes. 
Um, we're coming to a close with our time, and I have two questions I really want to ask, but I don't know if we have enough time for them. So I'm going to ask you both questions, and I'd love to just hear if you think a better one is a closing. Is that okay? Okay. Oh, your opinions. Um, the first is, what do you want to communicate across generational divides? And the next one, these are the two that I'm debating. Um, what have you all learned from one another today, and how might your relationship change going forward? Um, I want to say that answering the second question would take, like, so long. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that could be like the next podcast. Like that would be part two of this okay. conversation, Follow if you will. <laughs> um, okay. But I can answer the second one and the first one, at least with this one, with this response out. I think one of the things that has been really helpful to me and in, in, in speaking with Namratha specifically in this conversation, but also just in getting to know Namratha has been that while there may be events and experiences that lead us to reproductive justice differently, that lead us to reproductive justice in different ways, right? Like my having grown up in the 80s and all that was happening in New York City at the time, is not Namratha's experience, and yet we both ended up in RJ, right? And we are mm -hmm. looking for many of the same things in RJ, and I think we're contributing everything we can to RJ. I think sometimes what gets lost in the intergenerational conversations um, is being able to hold both. Hold the differences in what have the differences in the events and the moments that have shaped us in different generations, and then the similarities of, but we're still here. Like we got to the same place, we are in the same movement, and we are fighting the same fights, even if it might be with different strategies and for slightly different communities, right? Like that there can be those dramatic differences and similarities, and that we don't have to pit them against each other. We don't have to pretend they don't exist. I really appreciate hearing from Namratha, like, oh, there's actually more that we have in common. I'm usually the one who poo-poos that when, especially politicians, we have more in common than, you know, bleh. And yet, <laughs> when I hear, when I have a chance to hear Namratha's stories and Namratha's thoughts about what we do and how we do it, I sit there and I think, wow, like we're actually in a similar place, right? Our lives experiences have shaped us differently, but we, we got here and we are actually in community together. Um, and I think that is probably more true than not in RJ. Um, and so for me, it just tells me that we need to be in more community together and having more conversation together and being open to, you know, like to me, it's, it just goes back to what we do. Like we've got to keep building, keep building internally, like our connections to each other. Um, because I think that's a core strength of, of, of our movement. 
processing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, to answer the question, you know, what do I want to communicate across generational divides? divides um, it's kind of the same answer to the question of, you know, what have I learned here today in a way that none of us really have any idea about what's going on. Uh, and I say that in a, like, a kind of wonderful way. You know, we obviously have, like, our embodied knowledge of those things that we hold to be true. But the fact is that, and what I would want to communicate is that there are no sufficient answers, and that is a beautiful place to be. You know, it was, like, a wide open space of possibility. And so we have to just, because what I'm really thinking about now is like in this podcast, just in this kind of hour that we've been talking, there's so many things. I'm like, I need to probe that a little bit more before I can really land on an answer. But then, so I'm leaving with so many more questions than I, I have answers. But because I have so much more insight just having this one conversation. So what I want to communicate is have the conversation um, and not towards an answer. Like, because there are no good answers and that is a good thing. Because if we could really easily categorize like all of our experiences, that would be such a dull world to live in. And it's not. You know, we don't live in a dull world. We don't live single issue lives. Like, we don't we are all like these kind of vibrant, multifaceted beings. And if we are able to arrive at an easy answer, that's probably not the right answer. Um, and so, and it's exciting to have all of this stuff that is, you know, for the discovery, open for discovering. Um, the lifelong process. And I guess the lifelong and generational lifelong process. You know, the people, your Gen Z is going to be answering the same questions. Whoever comes after Gen Z is going to be probing for those same questions. And I think that that continuum is really important. I don't have another word for it right now because all I can say is, like, I'm very excited to see where we keep moving. Thanks for dropping into our conversation today and being part of our community. We're inspired by what we've heard, and we hope you are too. Don't hesitate to reach out to us if you'd like to get involved. We want to know your thoughts or ideas of who we should interview, including yourself. We here at CLIP are continuing to launch the next generation of reproductive justice leaders, and we hope you're ready to help knock down barriers and work towards liberation for all of us. You can find us at clipclpp.hampshire h-a-m-p-s-h-i-r-e dot e-d-u or email us at clip at hampshire dot e-d-u and we will put the link and email down below.